Well, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Psalm chapter 4. When I was a little tyke, I was taught this bedtime prayer. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I should die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. I believe it was my stepmother who taught me that prayer, which I find fascinating because she wouldn't identify as a Christian. But I have to imagine it was something that was taught to her as a little girl. And that prayer always did a number on me right before bed because it brought to the forefront of my mind the possibility of my imminent death, which was obvious fuel for nightmares. And now that I have kids myself, I've learned an alternative version of that prayer that I appreciate much more, that helps me and helps them enter rest with a little bit more confidence. It goes like this. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep his love to guard me through the night and wake me with the morning light. Amen. So I share this with you because we are going to this morning examine one of Scripture's bedtime prayers. Ultimately, in the coming weeks and months, we are going to be diving into a a series through the Old Testament book of Daniel. We're going to be going through from front to back. It's going to be this thrilling, challenging really helpful journey, and the plan is for us to study the whole book, but we're not going to do it at a breakneck speed. We're also not going to do it without occasionally coming up for air. At various points along the way, we're going to stop and we're going to take little detours into the book of Psalms, and we're actually going to start right now with one of those detours. And if you're not familiar with the Psalms, I really feel that they are a gift that God has given his people. A biblical scholar, Walter Bruggeman, describes the Psalms' value in this way. He says, in season and out of season, generation after generation, faithful women and men turn to the Psalms as a most helpful resource for conversation with God about things that matter most. The Psalms are helpful because they are genuine dialogues that express both sides of the conversation of faith. I love that. On the one hand, the the Psalms are the raw prayers of the people of God. As Bruggeman puts it, he says, they articulate the entire gamut of the believer's speech to God, from profound praise to the utterance of unspeakable anger and doubt. On the other hand, the Psalms are not only addressed to God, they are the voice of the gospel, God's good word addressed to his faithful people. In this collection of prayers and poems and identity-shaping songs, the community of faith continues to hear the sovereign speech of God who meets our community in the depths of our need and in the heights of our celebration. I really feel that the Psalms, they draw our every emotion 
and experience into our relationship with God. They help us to bring the facts of our lives into God's presence and to ask him to be our Lord and Savior, our our life and hope. And like I said, uh, we're going to meditate this morning on Psalm 4, and it's one of my favorite psalms. It's the prayer. It's a song. It's a poem. It's penned by David, Israel's famous shepherd king. And it actually begins with some technical notes. We read, To the choir master, with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. David's delivering this composition to the worship leader of God's people. And he's even giving instructions of, he says, put it to music and and use this particular set of instruments. And we'll see along the way, he even uh, includes some performance notes. We're going to see the Hebrew word selah. And selah is a technical cue that instructs the worshiper to pause in order to listen and reflect on what was just said. And we actually see that word selah, uh, trans- or we see it 71 times in the book of Psalms, three times in the book of Habakkuk. But I want to invite you to just kind of close your eyes and let the words of this psalm wash over you this morning. And then we're going to sit in silence for just a brief second afterwards to to allow this prayer to begin to penetrate our hearts and our minds. So Psalm 4. To the choir master with stringed instruments, a psalm of David. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me. And hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and and seek after lies? Selah. But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Selah. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. As we eavesdrop on David's prayer, what can we say right away that he believes about God. Listen to those first few lines again. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. 
What does David believe? I think the first thing we can tell is he says, God, you're listening. My frame's not hidden from your sight. My voice is not drowned out in the noise of the cosmos. You can hear me. I know it. So answer me. God, you're listening. The next thing he believes is, God, you've proved yourself faithful to me in the past. He said, I gave you, you've given me relief when I was in distress. Literally, it says, you have widened in narrowness. Or as the message paraphrase accurately puts it, once in a tight place, you gave me room. Think about your own story. When has God given you room in a tight place? What past proofs can you look to as evidence of God's devotion and trustworthiness? Can I teach you a new word? It's a Hebrew word. It's my favorite word in any language. And yes, I am nerdy enough to have favorite words in different languages. And it's the Hebrew word chesed. So say it with me. Chesed. Chesed. Good. It's the single word in all of Hebrew scripture that best encapsulates who God is. The God of Israel, as revealed in the Old Testament, is a God of chesed. Chesed is his defining characteristic. And you'll see chesed translated into English in a variety of ways. Loving kindness, steadfast love, mercy, covenant loyalty, gracious devotion. It's all trying to give language to this central truth that our God shows extraordinarily fierce loyalty and compassionate devotion to those he calls his own. And it's not because we deserve it. David's not saying, God, you owe me. He's simply acknowledging, God, for reasons I will never understand, you have made me and your people, my people, objects of your loving attention. We're recipients of your incredible grace. And God, I know you will uphold me because you have committed yourself to this relationship. Come hell or high water. Really, it is God's chesed that is David's anchor in the storm. He says, you've proved yourself faithful in the past, and it is your nature to do so again. The last thing we can see that he believes about God is this. God, you are the writer of wrongs. God is his vindication and his hope. David calls the Lord God of my righteousness. Righteousness is this key kind of characteristic to God's reign. And laser focus here is 
God's ability to set things right. He's able to bring active repair in our brokenness. To defend what is right in an unjust world. To defend us when we are falsely accused of what is wrong. This is David's true theology. God, you're listening. You've proved yourself faithful in the past, and you're the writer of wrongs. He knows this deep in his soul, so he opens his prayer with this just bold request, grace me. Show me mercy and compassion and favor that I don't deserve. Show up and make this broken world, this broken life, whole and beautiful and new. And remember that Psalm 4 is a, is a bedtime prayer. So what, is, what problems are spurring David into conversation with God this night? What's weighing heavy on his heart? Or we hear him say, O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? He's there in the dark. He's dialoguing with his opponents. Are any of you like that? You get to the end of your day and you start replaying your conversations. You go, oh, I should have said this. David's kind of doing that right now. And he's, he's feeling scorned by this mob of people who he says are, are misunderstanding and misrepresenting him. He asks, how long will you love empty words, guys? How long will you peddle falsehood? How long will you play at deception? He's kind of been caught up in this sort of ancient version of cancel culture, and he's struggling under the weight of what he feels is false criticism and just unfair injury to his reputation. And he says that the honor that the Lord has conferred to me, it's being spoken of as, as my shame. He says, yes, of course I'm a sinner saved by grace. Yes, of course I'm a nobody plucked from obscurity who the Lord has chosen to call his beloved. It's like, friends, that's baked into the equation for me. It's no surprise to me. And then in this next stanza, paragraph, we catch a glimpse of his nighttime mental routine. What he thinks about, what he reminds himself of, what he commits to as he settles down to rest. He says, be angry. Oh no, he says, but know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts, on your beds, and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. As I sat with this psalm this week, I feel like David's moving through kind of six intentional steps. Step one is remember whose you are. Know that the Lord has set apart the godly 
for himself. And don't mishear what he's saying. He's not saying, hey, God claims as his own those who perform godliness. It's actually most, way more close to what we memorized in Titus, that God is purifying for himself a people for his own possession. David is literally saying God makes distinct the faithful. And that word translated faithful is actually, or godly, is actually our Hebrew word hesed. It's literally God makes distinct those to whom he has chosen to be faithful. Those to whom he has devoted himself. Those to whom God has committed himself in relationship. This echoes what Moses discovered to be true in Exodus 33.16. Moses said, For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us, so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? We are distinct because God goes with us in relationship. Our identity is shaped by our experience of his steadfast love. Our opponents may slander us. Circumstances may thwart us. Our reputations may be called into question. But our honor and our glory is secure because it derives from God. It's never been about what we bring to the table. It's never been about our own merit. The grace of Jesus has opened the door for us to be in a restored relationship with God. And we have confidence that God hears when we call because Christ has committed himself to us. Remember whose you are, and stand firm in that identity. That's step one. Step two, I absolutely love. It is bring the full range of your emotions to God. Vent your feelings and frustrations there in God's presence, not elsewhere. Be angry, is what Scripture says. You have permission to be agitated, to quiver and to quake with emotion, to let the full turbulence of what you are genuinely experiencing excite. Bring that out into the open with God. God is big enough to handle it. He won't be scandalized by how you're processing. His love is unbelievable. Shakeable. And if you read through the Psalms, you'll discover that the psalmist says at times some wildly inappropriate things in his prayers. He yearns for vengeance, for bloodshed, for the, the brutal devastation of his enemies. And Scripture's not baptizing those desires as okay, but it is saying that this is the proper place to bring all the ugliness and the pain that we're feeling. Not only does God invite us to express to him everything 
that is going on inside, but this place of prayer is the proper outlet for venting. Indeed, we do damage if we vent elsewhere. I've discovered in marriage and ministry that there is a difference between venting and processing. I'm an external processor. I don't know what I think until I say it out loud. And I like to talk through things. And I discovered early on that sometimes my external processing is me taking all of the angst and stress and anxiety I feel and just vomiting it on somebody else. Usually my wife, sometimes my best friend Philip or my best friend Russell. They're in different states. And I feel this catharsis because I'm like, ah, I've got release. I've said it. And then they're like, ugh, you just put this all on me. And I don't know how to process it. I don't really know the situation. You've completely skewed my perspective on that person, all this stuff. I'm realizing the Lord's saying, you can process with your wife. You can process with your community, but you vent to me. You take all that angst and you vomit it on me. And then in the morning... You say, honey, I've been thinking through this. Can you pray with me? I I really appreciate your perspective. It's different, you see, right? And God says, vent to me. There's a great proverb that says, the vexation of a fool is known at once, but the prudent ignores an insult. And it says a little bit later, There is one whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. It's not that the wise person doesn't feel the stab of the insult. It's that they choose to carry that wound to their beds and process it there with God who is our healer. Amen? Which leads us to our third step. Reflect on the responses of your heart. Identify where you're tempted to lose your composure, to surrender your peace of mind, to miss God's mark. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your hearts on your beds. The church for... A long time has called this time of nightly reflection, the daily examine. It's for an invitation for us to look back at our day and wrestle through it with the Lord. And this time of reflection allows us, even if we had missed God, if we felt out of step with God throughout the day, it lets us in Retrospect, bring the Lord back into the trials and the struggles and the adventure of the day. And I love to do this daily examine uh, with a journal in one hand and a steaming cup of glazed lemon loaf tea in the other. That's kind of my rhythm. 
And I usually start by asking myself some simple questions. What happened today? Where did I feel grace today? Where was God particularly present? On the other hand, where did I feel emotional pain today? Where did I sin? Where did I screw up and miss the mark? Like I said, this kind of persistent habit of reflection invites Jesus back into the journey with us. It allows us to hear the Father's voice, to to recognize Jesus' presence in our daily life, and to discern the Holy Spirit's direction for us. So David says, talk in your heart with the Lord on your bed. What an invitation. And then step four, quiet your soul and rest in Him. Tune your heart to listen to His truth. Ponder and keep silence. Creole conversation requires times of quiet listening, as my wife reminds me. So once you've vented, pipe down. Take some deep, calming breaths and still yourself in God's presence. Surrender yourself into His rest and let His truth wash over you. This is the time where we choose to drop anchor in the Lord once again to allow Him to restore our composure, to grant us a peace beyond understanding, to permit Him to guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. And I love that the prophet Zephaniah gives us a vision of what this looks like from heaven's perspective. When he says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with joyful singing. You quiet yourself in your bed and God breaks out in song. And then step five, resolve upon waking to offer right sacrifices. To walk in obedience with God's revealed will. What He's already told you to do and to conduct yourself in a way that pleases God and reflects Him out into the world. Cindy Wapel uh, states this beautifully in the examine training that she led our leadership corps through uh, just last month. Simply put, she says this, resolve to live differently tomorrow and to sleep with gratitude. For it is by grace that you've been saved. Through faith. It's not your doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of work so that no one can boast. So we repent. We turn back to God. And we sleep believing that His divine power will provide all that we need for this life and for godliness. 
Which leads us to the last and the most important step. David says, and put your trust in the Lord. Offer your entire self to God. And trust your life to God's care and His leadership. And press wholeheartedly into that relationship. True power comes through our reliance on God. He is our refuge and strength. The God who loves us and is for us. Zechariah 4.6 Not by might, nor by power, but by Your Spirit, O God Almighty. Imagine how you would sleep if this was your regular nighttime routine. Imagine what sort of emotional health you would find if you pressed into this sort of relationship with the Lord. And I love how the psalmist finishes this off. He says, There are many who say, Who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. The scornful mob again makes an appearance, but this time their frustration is not directed at David. It is directed at God. They're restless and they're dissatisfied with his supposed provision and they're demanding more. They're saying, look at us, God. Shine the full light of your face upon us. We require more favor, more blessing, more attention, more provision, more. And David, he he knows all about life's actual challenges. He knows what it's like to need provision, to have your reputation drugged through the mud. He knows all of the real needs that we have in this life. But he's come to this conclusion that you alone, O Lord, are essential for life. And as we come to the end of this, I have to ask, what is weighing heavy on you? With what is your heart struggling? If I gave you permission to vent what is raging inside, what would be your secret complaint? In all of those things, David invites us to trust the Lord. And I know it sounds trite, but Jesus is the answer. I've tried the other strategies. I've tried worry. I've tried grinding forward with sheer effort. I've tried playing the game, recruiting allies, manipulating to kind of advance my cause. I've tried prioritizing my health and happiness at the expense of others. I've, I've tried anger and rage loudly advocating for myself and making 
my own defense. I've tried running away, drowning the troubles of this life in distractions and, and substances. No path outside of Jesus has yielded the joy and the peace and the safety and security with which David is speaking about. Jesus is the one who by His death and resurrection broke the power of evil, sin, and death and is making all things new. Even us. Jesus is the one who loves us so much that He committed Himself to us by giving His very life to secure our future and our hope. He says, you can trust me to do the same, to show such commitment and devotion and care in these very real challenges that you're facing right now. And if we trust Him, if we do, we open the door to the experience of joy. And biblical joy is more than happy feelings. It is an attitude that God's people adopt, not because our circumstances are easy, but because we hope in God's love and promise. We trust Christ's chesed, His extraordinarily fierce loyalty and compassionate devotion to those He calls His own. And we choose that our outlook and our perspective would not be determined by our circumstances, but that it would be determined by our future destiny, secure in Jesus' own life and love. David says, trusting in the Lord, it transcends the value of any material good. Trusting God helps dispel anxiety and it makes for genuine peace. And peace is not merely the absence of conflict. True peace means taking what is broken and restoring it to wholeness, whether that's in our lives, our relationships, our world. And I think this is exactly what's taking place when we process with the Lord there on our beds. He's putting us back together again. He's restoring what the crises of the day stole from us. He's mending our wounds. He's correcting our errors. He is making us new. So tonight, I encourage you, try it. Pray this prayer tonight. And try to kind of, there in the darkness, move through these intentional steps. Remember whose you are. Vent the full range of your emotions to God. Reflect on the responses of your heart. Quiet your soul and rest in Him. And then resolve to walk in step with God's will tomorrow. To 
to represent him in a renewed way tomorrow. And sleep, as Cindy says, in gratitude, entrusting yourself wholly to God's love and leadership. We experience God's salvation on a grand scale, and we experience God's salvation on a small scale each and every day. On the cross, he took all of that condemnation that we rightly deserved. And he took the charges upon his shoulders. He broke the power of our enemies and he opened for us a new future. And that was cosmic. That is historical. That changes the very direction and our life for all eternity. But his salvation is also small and intimate. It's us taking our brokenness to him on a Tuesday, saying, God, I'm a mess, and I'm a storm inside, and I'm angry, and I don't know what to do. He says, I've rescued and saved already. Let me rescue and save again. Let me make you whole and new. And all you have to do is trust me. Sure, it feels like you choose me, but I chose you from before the foundations of the world to show you my love and my grace and my care. So just say yes and trust me and rest there in my hands. Amen? Well, I'm going to uh, close our time by reading to you the psalm again, but this time from the message paraphrase. And I know that some folks don't like the message, but especially in the psalms, I find them to be an incredibly faithful reading of these prayers. So let this identity-shaping song wash over you once again. Receive this from the Lord. When I call, give me answers. God, take my side. Once in a tight place, you gave me room. Now I'm in trouble again. Grace me. Hear me. You rabble, how long do I put up with your scorn? How long will you lust after lies? How long will you live crazed by illusion? Look at this. Look who got picked by God. He listens the split second I call to him. Complain if you must, but don't lash out. Keep your mouth shut. And let your heart do the talking. Build your case before God and wait for his verdict. Why is everyone hungry for more? More, more, they say. More, more. I have God's more than enough. 
more joy in one ordinary day than they get in all their shopping sprees. At day's end, I'm ready for sound sleep. For you, God, have put my life back together. The word of the Lord for us. Thanks be to God.